You are listening to audio from First Baptist Church in Fort Walton Beach. If you would like more resources or to watch our service online, please visit fbcfwb.org. Listen in as Pastor Wade helps us abide in Christ and advance the gospel through the teaching and the proclamation of God's Word. We're going to read the 26th Psalm together, 12 verses, not very long, but it is rich, and we're going to read this Psalm of David, and then we will uh, study it um, together. Before we do that, let me just remind you uh, what Dr. Kendall Easley writes about the Psalms in terms of a theme of the Psalms. He says, God, the true and glorious King, is worthy of all praise and prayer, thanksgiving and confidence, whatever the occasion in personal or community life. And so the major driving theme of the Psalms is whatever you're going through, mountaintops or valleys, God is worthy of your trust and he's worthy of your praise. And that's an important thing to remember. And I love this quote from John Piper because he picks up on the emotional aspect of the Psalms. He says, the Psalms are songs. As a reminder, the the book of Psalms is a collection of hymns used in worship with the Hebrews. It says, the Psalms are songs. They are poems. They are written to awaken and express and shape the emotional life of God's people. Poetry and singing exist because God made us with emotions, not just thoughts. Our emotions are massively important, and the Psalms bear witness to that. Fact. And Psalm 26 is a powerful psalm. So look there with me. Psalm 26, verse 1. It says, A psalm of David. And he writes, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind, for your steadfast love is better or is before my eyes. I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep away. Uh, Sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands are evil devices, and whose right hands are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me, be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground in the great assembly. I will bless the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful for this time together. We're grateful, Lord, for your word and for your spirit, which gives us understanding of your word. And I pray, God, that in these moments together, you would, by the power of the Spirit, open the eyes of our hearts, that we would see and understand and comprehend and appreciate the truths of Scripture. And most of all, Lord, that we would apply these truths to our lives, that we would respond to what you say to us. So encourage us tonight and challenge us tonight. Uh, May we leave this place more in love with you than when we walked in. And we'll thank you and praise you for that grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, there was a, a time in my life, and I'm not in that currently in that uh, moment, but I need to get back to it. But there was a time in my life when I was in pretty decent shape, and I ran a lot. And I, I ran a couple half marathons, ran a marathon. And so when you're doing that, you got to spend a lot of time just getting in shape and training and running and getting your mileage in. And uh, 
One, uh, <clears throat> one day I was out running, and it was it's kind of in the morning uh, before I would go into my office, and uh, I was I was weekday, and I was running. Beautiful morning. It was kind of about this time of year. It, it had cooled off a little bit, and uh, you know, there's still a little bit of dew on the ground, and you know, the birds were singing, and the sun was shining, and I was feeling good. I was running, and and I remember I was running by a school, and I, I was running by the school, and I looked over, and there's this guy mowing the grass. And he was on one of these mowers. He was standing on the back of it, and he was mowing, and and I looked at him. He looked at me, and the next thing I knew, I hit a crack in the side or something. And I was, listen, I was flat on my face in, in like a millisecond. If it would have been recorded, I would have made money off of the video. I mean, it, it must have looked so ridiculous. I was running along, smiling, and then wham, and I was, I was down, and I, and I popped right back up, you know, and I looked at the guy, and he looked away as if to say, I saw it, but I'm glad like I didn't see it, all right? And, uh, and, and I kept running, and uh, that, was a, that was a painful reminder that I need to pay attention when I'm running. And you'd say, well, wait, that was a one-time thing, right? Wrong. And I, I consider myself a fairly coordinated person, but, but one day, uh, it was during the summer, we had vacation Bible school that morning, and, and we were trying to get all the family together to get to vacation Bible school, get them in the van. And I told Claris, I'm going to just go ahead. I'm going to just, I was trying to get in shape. I said, I'm going to run to church. Uh, you know, it was about a four-mile run. I'm going to run to church, and I'll, and I'll, and I'll meet you there. And so, uh, I took off before them, and because I, you know, was trying to time it well, and and uh, I was I was running towards the the church building, try to get there before vacation Bible school started, and a church member came running by, uh, driving by in his truck. So he rolls down the window, hey, Pastor Wade, hey, waving at me, and again, take my attention off what I'm doing, and he and I, he said, go a little faster. So I was going to act like I was going, so I was going to act like I was going to run fast. I hit a crack or something. Next thing I knew. And listen, this was blood. There was blood on my knees, on my arms. On, so so uh, I, I, I act like it didn't hurt me. He said, do I need to stop? I said, no, go ahead. I'm fine. Fine. But then Claire came driving by the van. I said, stop, stop, stop. And I jumped in with her. They got me to the building. And then that, what was funny about it is, I mean, I was bleeding all over. Elbows, knees, it was really bad. And so we went in and I found a first aid kit. In the, in the church, and I put like gauze and tape, athletic tape, and I was taping up, and I came out for VBS to do the pledges for the kids. They're thinking, what is wrong with Pastor Wade? I had stuff all over me. Um, but just a reminder that if, if you're not paying attention, you are apt to fall, right? You're apt to fall, and, and you've probably got some stories like that when you weren't paying attention, and you stumbled and maybe even fell. Well, this psalm is about living in such a way that you have firm footing in life, that you're, you're not prone to, to stumbling and falling all the time. There's a, there's a consistency in your uh, Christian journey. And, and that's what this psalm is about. It's, it's about that firm footing. And here's why I say that's what it's about. Look what it says in verse 1. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. Now look at this next phrase. And I've trusted in the Lord without wavering. Everybody see that phrase, without wavering? That phrase literally in the Hebrew is the, the phrase, I shall not slip. That's what it means. I shall not slip. I shall not stumble and fall. 
And so David here is talking about firm footing in life. I'm, I'm walking in integrity, and, and I've got that firm footing so I don't stumble and fall. And then look what it says in the very last verse of this psalm, verse 12. My foot stands on what? What's it say there? Level ground. In other words, I'm, 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 I'm firmly planted on level ground. I have firm footing so that I will not slip and fall or stumble and fall. So the first verse and the last verse uh, serve as Lord brackets around this psalm, and they remind us this psalm is about firm footing for life or a stable life. So what I want to do is I want to look at this psalm, look what David says, and I want to draw from it three necessities for a stable life. If you want to have a a spiritually stable life. These are three necessities to have that because David says, this is what I've experienced in my own journey. So necessity number one for a stable life, place your life in God's hands. Place your life in God's hands. He says there, vindicate me, O Lord, verse one, I've walked in my integrity, I've trusted. Notice that phrase. I've trusted in the Lord without wavering or uh, without slipping is what he is saying there. But notice that first uh, phrase, vindicate me, O Lord. He's asking for God's vindication. And David here is basically calling for God's justice. He's surrounded by enemies. He's surrounded by people that want to destroy him. And he's saying, God, I'm trying to serve you. I'm trying to do the right thing. I'm trying to walk in integrity. So would you vindicate my, my attempt at being godly in the midst of those who are ungodly? It's almost like David saying, hey, don't let them win, God. Uh, show, show the watching world what, what, what godliness looks like and how you support those and keep those stable who are walking the right path. And so he's calling here for God's justice. Um, Warren Wiersbe writes this, Vindicate means give me justice or defend my reputation. Give me justice or defend my reputation. People were, were trying to destroy David. We don't know, again, what part of David's life this refers to, but if you read about his life, you'll realize that most of his life uh, was spent with folks trying to destroy him. He had enemies uh, through most of his life, and he's saying, vindicate me, give me justice, defend my reputation. But James Montgomery Boyce says there's more to it than just that. David is, is, is desiring here to be vindicated, and at first glance, uh, it suggests a desire to be shown right over against other people. It's like he's saying, I've been falsely accused. Show everybody that I'm really innocent. Uh, and that is true. That's what he means by vindicate me. But, but Boyce says, as I read this psalm, I sense that it is not David's reputation in the eyes of other people that concerns him, but rather God's vindication of, listen to this, God's vindication of the rightness of a devout and moral life. In other words, it's like David saying, God, show the watching world that godliness works. Show the watching world that it matters how you live. It matters where your focus is. It matters that you are walking on the right path. Boyce goes on to say, in other words, it is not his own, own reputation, but God's reputation that he covets. He's been trying to obey God. He's surrounded by many who think that he is foolish. 
just as we are surrounded by similar mockers of righteousness today. What he's asking is that God will show by the quality and steadiness of his life that a moral life is always best for the sake of God's honor and for the good of those who may be looking on. So David is saying here, God, would you, would you come to my rescue? Would you come to my aid? Would you help me so folks can see, like Boyce says, that a moral life is always best. And let me say it again. A moral life is always best. Taking God seriously is always best. And David wants to show that in the circumstances he finds himself in. So David here is calling for God's justice. But secondly, David waits on God by actively trusting God. Look what it says there in verse 1. I have trusted in the Lord without wavering or without uh, slipping. It means I've, I've put my confidence in the Lord, my faith in the Lord. I'm trusting him through this circumstance. And look what it says in verse 11. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity, redeem me, and be gracious to me. And so here's what David's saying. God, I'm trusting you. I'm trusting you'll vindicate me. I'm trusting you'll help me. I'm trusting you'll rescue me. But I'm going to keep doing my part. Or, or let me say it like this. God, as I'm asking you to do your part, I'm going to be careful that I'm doing my part. I'm going to, to be focused on, look at verse 11, walking in integrity, doing the right thing, living in a way that honors you. So David waits on God by actively trusting God. A lot of people struggle with the biblical concept of waiting on God. What does it mean that you wait on God? Does it mean you just sit there and kind of twiddle your thumbs and just, you know, just kind of kind of pie in the sky that that maybe God will show up when you when you need him, but until then you're just gonna just kind of sit there and what no, that's not what it means. It means that you place your life in God's hands, you place your circumstances in God's hands, you place your troubles in God's hands, you place your anxieties and concerns in God's hands, and as you trust him, you do the right thing. You honor and obey the Lord with your life. Let me show you this. Hold your place, but turn over to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, New Testament book of 1 Peter. I'm going to show you a verse that really helps me with this concept. 1 Peter chapter 4, and and fast forward to the, the end of the chapter. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse... 19. Now, let me give you just a little bit of uh, context, or let me show you. Look in verse 12. He's writing to the Christians that are scattered throughout Asia Minor. They were experiencing great persecution for their Christian faith. Uh, they lived in, in uh, a context where people uh, uh, oppressed them and persecuted them for following Jesus. And in verse 12 of 1 Peter 4, Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. In other words, don't be surprised when you suffer. That's part of following Jesus. I mean, your Lord and Savior was perfect, and they flogged him and crucified him. So don't be surprised that when you follow Jesus, that some people may be opposed to you. Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal. So what should we do when we're following Jesus, but life gets hard? Look in verse 19. Therefore, I love this verse. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. 
I'm suffering, I'm being persecuted, life is hard, I'm trying to do the right thing, and I don't understand it all, but I'm going to, I'm going to entrust my soul to God. I'm, I'm putting it in His hands. I trust that He knows where I am. He knows what I'm going through. He knows how to help me. He knows what I need. I'm entrusting my soul to a faithful Creator. But look at the very last part of that verse. He says, I'm going to entrust, uh, they, they will entrust their soul to a faithful Creator. Look at the next three words. While doing what? Good. So trusting God is not just this passive, do-nothing kind of faith. Trusting God is relying upon God, leaning upon God, while you strive to serve Him. While you strive to do what He's called you to do. While you live according to His Word. And so David waits on God by actively trusting God. And that word actively means he's going to continue to focus on the Lord. So number one, place your life in God's hands. That's the first necessity for a stable life. Number two, and this is so important, maybe one of the most under-practiced disciplines in Christianity today. Okay? Number two, live an examined life. An examined life. Look back with me in Psalm 26, Psalm 26. Look what David says in verse 2. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. When's the last time you prayed a prayer like that? God, I want you to turn the, the searchlight of your holiness on my heart and my mind and show me if there's anything there that doesn't look like you. Anything that's there that I need to deal with. Live an examined life. Now this uh, requires two different areas of examination. First of all, God's examination. God's examination. He says there, prove me, O Lord, try me, test my heart and my mind. Uh, hold your place. But look over in Psalm 139. I want to show you another passage where David calls for God to search out his life. Psalm 139 Verse 23, David ends this beautiful psalm. I love Psalm 139. He ends it by saying, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Show me if there's anything there that doesn't belong there. So I can get on the right path, the, 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 the path that those who are headed to everlasting life walk on. God's examination. When's the last time you ask God to examine you? Let me tell you a prayer that I pray quite a bit, and it's a prayer that God always answers. Do you want to you know a prayer that God always answers almost immediately? Would you be interested in hearing that prayer? Some of you are like, no, not really, I'm... Did everybody get dessert? Some of you aren't smiling. Everybody, did, did, did. all right. Here's a prayer I pray, and God almost always immediately answers the prayer. You ready for it? Get ready, write it down, get your pens, write it down, all right? I say, Lord, would you bring to the surface of my heart anything that doesn't belong there? Will you bring to the surface of my heart anything that doesn't belong there so I can confess it and deal with it? And I'm just telling you, when you pray that prayer, God's going to surface some stuff in your heart. He's going to show you some things that maybe you didn't even know you needed to deal with that you need to deal with. 
And God answers that prayer in my life almost immediately every time I pray it because it's in line with what David's saying here. Search me, try me. Because you understand, don't you, that if you've got junk in your life, if you've got a a bunch of mess in your life that you never deal with, it's just going to sit there and fester and begin to spread, and it's going to it's going to put down roots in your heart and in your mind, and it's going to make you miserable, and it's going to weigh on you like a heavy burden. And God gives us this grace of of examination, where we say, "Try me, God." And when we when when God shows us things in our life, then He gives us the grace of confession, where we can say, "God, I confess this is sin. I don't want it in my heart anymore." As David prayed, "Create in me a clean heart." Oh God, confession. And I believe that's one of the most underpracticed disciplines in modern day Christianity. I believe a lot of Christians are walking around with a bunch of junk in their heart they've not dealt with. They've not gotten alone with God and said, God, search me, try me. There's some stuff maybe between me and another person. Is there some unforgiveness in my life? Is there some impurity in my life? Is there some, some past action, some things I've done, and I've never confessed them as sin, and, and, and it's, just, it's just weighing me down and burdening me? God, show me. Is there some, there's some envy in my life, some jealousy? Is there lack of contentment in my life? Is there anger in my life? Uh, is there pettiness in my life? Is, is there backbiting in my life? Is there slander in my life? Is there gossiping in my life? Ask God to do a work to show you things in your heart. And he will, because listen, God doesn't want you to walk around with a bunch of junk in your heart. He wants you to experience the freedom of being cleansed. The freedom of having those sins just, just taken away and you can experience His uh, that, that uh, renewed fellowship with him. And so live and examine life. First of all, God's examination. Ask God to examine your heart and show you things that you need to deal with. I'm telling you, he will. He'll do that. But it's not because God wants you to feel miserable. It's because God loves you. And he doesn't want you to walk around with that junk, that filth in your life. He wants you to confess it, get it out, and go in a new direction. Secondly, and this is closely akin to God's examination, but there's self-examination. Self-examination. Look what David says there in verse 3. Your steadfast love is before my eyes. We're back in Psalm 26. And I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers. I will not sit with um, the wicked, David says. I wash my hands in innocence. I go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud, telling all your wondrous deeds. So it's like David is thinking about his life. David's saying, as, as far as I know, I'm not hanging around with folks that are going to drag me down and point me in the right direction. I'm not, uh, wrong direction. I'm not letting ungodly folks influence me. I'm trying to keep a barrier between me and them so they won't pull me in the wrong direction. And as far as I know, Lord, I'm, 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 I'm living in innocence and integrity. I'm dealing with my sin and trying to live for you. I'm, I'm grateful. I'm pro- uh, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud. It's like David's doing here just kind of a quick self-examination. When was the last time you just stopped and took a moment and thought about how your Christian life is going? I mean, just, just got quiet. I mean, phone down and just TV off and maybe just on your knees and just, you know, how, how's my, how am I doing in my Christian life? How's it look? Am I growing in Christ? Do I look more like Jesus than I did last year or five years ago? 
is God dealing with me and molding me and making me into who he wants me to be? Or am I just kind of going through the motions? David's saying here, I'm trying to live the right kind of life, do the right thing for the glory of God, self-examination. Uh, I think it was Socrates that said uh, that a, how do you say it? He talked about the tragedy of an unexamined life. And of course, he was a Greek philosopher. He wasn't talking about biblical examination. But I think there is a truth there that if we never stop and, and, and check and see how we're doing, then we're just kind of, we're going to get just stumble and bumble our way through life. And we're not going to have a stability and a firm footing in our lives. You'll be like me running down the sidewalk before you know it, you're flat on your face, right? Because you're not dealing with stuff in your life. So live an examined life. Let God show you what's in your heart. And if there's sin there, if there's stuff there, confess it before the Lord. Ask him to cleanse you and create in you a clean heart before him. So number one, place your life in God's hands. Number two, live an examined life. Oh, I might add another thing under live an examined life. If uh, God's examination and self-examination doesn't work, ask your spouse. All right. Okay. All right. That's all right. They'll, they'll give you some insight into your shortcomings. Amen. Okay. All right. Sorry. Okay. All right. Number three. Number three. Stop pointing at each other. Stop that. All right. Number three. Place your life in God's hands. Live and examine life. Third and last. Develop a passion for worship. Develop a passion for I don't know anything that gives you greater stability in your day-to-day life than putting your focus in the right place. Those times that I fell down is because I wasn't watching where I was running. I took my eyes off of the path, I was looking around, and I fell flat on my face. Worship keeps your focus in the right place so that you will have firm footing and spiritual stability. And that's what David's talking about the last part of this psalm. He's examining his own life. He says, I'm a worshiper of God, and that worship keeps my focus right. And so let me give you, let's see, five thoughts about true worship, what, what, what it looks like to develop a passion for worship. Number one, true worship begins when you are washed in the blood. True worship begins when you are washed in the blood. Now look what it says there in verse 6. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord. David here is talking about the setup of the temple structure. So the temple is the, the building. Um, when David's time, it was, uh, it was not a permanent structure. It was a tent of meeting. His son Solomon built a permanent building. But they had a tent of meeting, a place where the Ark of the Covenant would be housed. It was behind a, um, a, a, a veil, a big curtain. And before that curtain was another room called the holy place. And they had different implements in the holy place where, where priests would do ministry. But outside of the, the holy place, the holy of holies, out in the, the surrounding area, there were two different um, implements uh, that, that priests would use. One was a, a, um, a, a basin for water. And so they would wash their hands and wash themselves before they would go into minister before the presence of the Lord in the holy place. And, and of course, this was all symbolic of the need to be clean before the Lord. And the, the admission, they were not clean. But also outside of the, the holy place, not only was there a basin of water, there was also an altar where they would kill the animals 
used in the sacrificial system. So if you know much about your Old Testament, you know that there was this system that God implemented with the uh, Ark of the Covenant, with an altar, with priests, with uh, bulls and goats and calves. And they, in different days, different uh, occasions, different feasts, they would, they would kill uh, certain animals as prescribed by God, and they would shed that animal's blood on the altar. And all of those sacrifices uh, pointed to an ultimate sacrifice. The, the sacrificial system was a teaching tool. It was a reminder to the Israelites that you're, you're guilty and innocence must die to cover your guilt. Because these animals were not morally culpable for sin, right? They're animals, right? But these innocent animals would be killed on behalf of the Hebrew people. A recognition that their, their sin needs atonement. Their sin needs covering by the shedding of the blood of another. Now, did the, the shedding of the blood of the bulls and goats and calves, did that save people? No. The Bible says very clearly, Hebrews 10, that the law cannot make perfect. But those sacrifices pointed to a coming sacrifice, an ultimate sacrifice. They pointed to the sacrifice of Jesus who came to this earth, took on humanity, went to the cross, and on the cross shed his blood, innocence, dying for guilt. Me, you, guilt. He shed his blood for us. He died in our place, taking the punishment that we deserve. That's called the substitutionary atonement of Christ. He died in our place. And when we embrace him as our Lord and Savior, as we place our faith in Jesus, his shed blood, his death on the cross is applied to our lives and our sins are forgiven. They are washed away, cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. So when David here mentions the altar, he's speaking of, of shed blood. He's speaking of that sacrificial system that points to the ultimate sacrifice. And it's a reminder to you and I that if we want to be true worshipers of God, it begins with the altar. It begins with the blood. It begins with, with innocence dying for guilt. We cannot come into the presence of God without the shedding of blood. That's why Jesus said over in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's the only perfect sacrifice for sin. So you cannot have your sins forgiven apart from Jesus and his shed blood. So if you want to have a relationship with God, if you want to worship him in spirit and in truth, you got to come to him through Jesus and only through Jesus. So it's interesting here that he begins at the altar. I wash my hands, the basin of water, uh, sim symbolic of, of the need for cleansing. And I go around your altar, O oh Lord, the place where the blood is shed. I'm, I'm proclaiming thanks to giving aloud, telling all your wondrous deeds. So true worship begins when you are washed in the blood. A high priest, a king, they never would have even considered approaching the holy place certainly the Holy of Holies, without the blood of a slain animal. They knew that that, that sacrificial system prefigured the ultimate sacrifice of Christ. And so true worship begins when you are washed in the blood. Uh, secondly, true worship is unashamed. True worship is unashamed. Look what it says in verse 7. 
I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving. And look at that next word. Isn't it interesting that that word is added? Proclaiming thanksgiving what? Aloud. Like I'm, I'm so grateful, I'm just talking about it. And then it even carries over into evangelism. Telling all your wondrous deeds. It's almost like David saying, I'm so excited about your grace and your mercy and your love. I just can't keep it inside. I, I talk about it, right? I, I, I'm grateful. I'm thankful out loud. I'm, I'm telling others about all you've done. Uh, it was a, a, a true worship that was unashamed. And true worshipers of Jesus will be unashamed. Unashamed to, to bear witness to who Christ is and what Christ has done. True, uh, true worship is unashamed of God's uh, place in our lives. We want others to know him the way that we know him. True worship is unashamed. And let me ask you this question, just kind of a thoughtful moment. I, I know in here, like, you know, we're supposed to act like Christians, right? So we, we, I got that. But what about, like, what about Thursday? What about tomorrow? Like, when you're living your life on the job and your family, could people just kind of observe that and hear what you say and know that you're a believer? It's a good question to ask, isn't it? True worship is unashamed. Number three, true worship recognizes that the place of worship is special. Look what it says in verse 8. Verse 8. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. So he's here talking about the tent of meeting, uh, later known as the temple, the place where the Ark of the Covenant uh, would stay. And here's what's interesting. When God's people would carry out the sacrificial system as prescribed with the slain animals and the high priest doing their thing and, and going into the holy place and, and the high priest once a year going into the Holy of Holies. By the way, Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, is, is Monday. Uh, I think it's Monday of next week. Um, th that celebrates the Day of Atonement. But when, when God's people... When they, would, when they would worship him as prescribed and practice the sacrificial system, then God would manifest his glory over the Ark of the Covenant. He would come and meet with his people. He would make his presence known. And true worship recognized the place of worship is special. David said, I like it here. This is, this, this is a place where we gather and we get our focus right and we sing praises. They were singing probably a lot of these home psalms we're studying together. They were singing hymns. They were telling of his greatness aloud. They were thanking him for all that he's done. They were reminded of the shedding of blood needed to cover their sins. They were reminded of the need of atonement. They were reminded of God's grace and God's love and God's mercy. And David said, I like it here. I like to come and worship. Now, there's no uh, temple. There's no tent of meeting uh, in today's time, um, but God's people still gather, right? The church still gathers. We gather in local assemblies, and there's nothing, you know, there's nothing magical about a building. A building is a building. What makes what makes a building special is when it's the place God's people gather. It becomes holy ground, doesn't it? Not because of the building, but because it's where God's people gather. And it's where God is glorified. And so David here recognized the place of worship is special. He loved to get together with God's people. That's what, that's what I'm saying. And, and I just want to say this, and I know I'm kind of talking to the, you know, the choir tonight, so to speak. But uh, if, you're, if, if you name the name of Christ, if you're a believer in Jesus, and you do not desire to gather with God's people, something's wrong somewhere. Something's wrong because that's just not natural. 
A, a, a person that knows Christ should have this inner compulsion to get together with God's people because the church is the bride of Christ, right? And we should love the bride of Christ like Jesus does. True worship recognizes the place of worship is special. Next, true worship longs for God's presence. Verse 8, O Lord, I love the habitation of your house. That's where they would gather for worship and the place where your glory dwells. And so he's re- reminding us here that God, again, would manifest his glory over the Ark of the Covenant. The kavod, the glory cloud, would come down. Can you imagine how in, um how impressive that would have been to see God's glory come down and rest on the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, he, he was manifesting his presence among his people. It's an awesome, awesome thing. You can read about this, by the way, in 1 Kings chapter 8. If you read 1 Kings 8, Solomon com- uh, completes the temple. He dedicates the temple. They sacrifice a bunch of animals. And then this tells us God's glory comes down. And uh, it's an awesome, awesome chapter. Um, but true worship longs for God's presence. Now, let's talk about God's presence for a minute. Just real, kind of real quick aside here. If you are a believer in Jesus, if you're born again, if you're saved, Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So, so the presence of the Lord is an unfailing reality in your life. Amen? He's always with you. Even if you don't feel it, he's always with you. And so there is the... There is the ongoing presence in the life of a believer. And that's one of the ways that the Bible talks about the presence of God. But there's other places that talk about God manifesting his presence in a special way. Like Isaiah says, God comes down. God comes down. And and there are times where God will, will help you through a dramatic manifestation of his presence He'll help you to feel his presence. Like we know he's with us. He'll never lose our faith. But there's times, and, I, and I've had it happen in the gathering of God's people. There are times, many times, where God draws near in a special way and, and you, just, you just know he's near. He's letting you know he's there. You ever been in a worship service like that where God just kind of just draws near in a powerful way and, and you leave and think, well, God was there today, right? Well, of course, if you're a Christian, God was there. He's there in your life. He's, he's, his presence is unfailing. But there are times when God's people to get together and God manifests his presence in a special way. It's hard to even explain, but you know it when it happens. And, and David's saying there, I love when, when you're present with us, God. When you manifest your presence, we love your presence. True worship longs for God's presence. And by the way, not only do you get this experience when you gather with God's people, because I believe this happens regularly, God manifests his presence, but you get to enjoy the presence of God every day when you just get alone with him, right? It's like uh, Hebrews 4 says, when, when you know Jesus, when you go and read your Bible and pray, you are entering the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God. You get to be in his presence. What, a, what an amazing reality. True worship longs for God's presence. And then uh, fifth and last, Talking about developing a passion for worship. True worship keeps you grounded. True worship keeps you grounded. My foot stands on level ground. And look at the next phrase or the next part of the sentence. In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. So he's talking about stable living. He's talking about firm footing in the context of the assembly the gathering of God's people to worship. In other words, and don't miss this, David is saying, when I get together with God's people and get my focus right, my life is more stable. 
my life is on firm footing. There's something about worship that gets your focus back where it needs to be, doesn't it? That gets your perspective right. That, as the, the, the old hymn says, there's something about worship that makes the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. And so you and I need to work. We need to get together to worship to be reminded of ultimate spiritual realities, so that we will be grounded and stable uh, in this life. There's an example of this over in Psalm 73. Uh, spoiler alert: We'll get to Psalm 73 one day. But anyway. Uh, you'll forget about this by the time we get to Psalm 73. But in Psalm 73, the psalmist is saying, um, God, I don't understand. I'm trying to live the right kind of life. I'm trying to live a godly life, and life is hard. I'm struggling, you know, to put it in modern day thought. I'm, I'm struggling to pay the light bill. And I look at these other folks over here, and they're ungodly. They have no concern for you, and they are eating the best food, living in the best house. I mean, they got it made. And the psalmist is perplexed. Why is the godly struggling and the ungodly from his perspective seem to be thriving? It's a good question. I mean, you've had that question before. You look at somebody who's, who doesn't care about the Lord, and they seem like they're doing great. No cares, no concerns, plenty of money, nice house. You know, living it up. And the psalmist says... I struggle to understand it. But then he says, then I went to worship. I went to worship. And he says, when I went to worship, the psalmist says, I perceived their end. In other words, God reminded me that if you don't turn to him, it doesn't end well. And so the psalmist is saying, why would I envy people who are headed for destruction? I mean, their life may look good now, but it's not going to end well. Why would I envy people headed for that kind of destruction? And so the point of Psalm 73 is, and I think the point of what David's saying here in Psalm 26 is, when we go to worship, God gives us perspective, eternal perspective, right perspective on life and living. So when we're perplexed by life, we remember the realities of life that we need to build our lives upon. And so true worship keeps you grounded and and I believe that is a uh, that that that's a promise that's a promise I'm not saying you won't go through hard times I'm not saying that you won't deal with difficult things I'm not saying that you won't be perplexed by life but I'm telling you if you will make worship a priority God will give you the focus you need the perspective you need so that you can process it all and stay on the right path through it all worship is that very important true worship keeps you grounded. And so, how do you keep journeying through this life without falling flat on your face, right? How do you do it? How do you have firm footing, a stable life, not slipping? Place your life in God's hands, live an examined life, and develop a passion for worship. Those three things will help you. Thank you for listening. We pray you've been encouraged and inspired by God's Word. May the Lord richly bless you.